Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you and welcome back to another episode of Faith in Focus, where we explore matters of faith in the context of modern society. At Faith in Focus, we aim to take matters from all walks of life and interrogate them under the lens of faith and belief, as well as the female perspective. I am your host, Komal Hadi, and today we will be discussing journalistic integrity. In some form or other, and very broadly speaking, we are all involved in the act of information sharing and some level of journalism, regardless of the place or age in history we are from. Journalism has always been rooted in society because we are beings who revel in learning and gaining knowledge, being naturally inclined to self-development and evolving our minds. We are also curious beings. Historically speaking, whether it is the literary works of Antonio Gramsci in the 20th century or the novel ideas of Galileo and the 17th century Catholic Church, people in all walks of life have fought to defend their right to share their opinions publicly, many enduring rebuttal and punishment as a result. New information through history has caused tidal waves of change and have deeply impacted previously held beliefs and norms at a minute level. For instance, Changes in art and poetry in the late 1800s can be credited to the publication of Charles Darwin's findings in The Origin of Species. These examples also display the concrete and rippling effect of news, literature and information sharing. Navigating through the implications that arise as a result of publicising personal opinions in print, broadcast or photography is no doubt an intricate process. However, It is a liberty that is protected by freedom of expression laws worldwide. Since the invention of the printing press in the 1400s, news is dispersed to the masses and each decade seems to bring in new advancements that allow information to be broadcast further and wider. With new avenues of spreading vital knowledge of day-to-day occurrences, namely social media outlets, phrases such as fake news and alternative facts have become normalised in the realm of journalism. In this show, we will decipher the concept of journalistic integrity and what this really means under the lens of a key principle in Islam, honesty. But before we delve into our episode, looking at journalism today, I think it would be interesting to first learn about the origins of journalism. For this, we turn to Qudsiya for a report enlightening us on the early methods of information preserving and distributing before our phones and computers. Thank you for the introduction, Gomel. We read in research articles that scholars generally agree that the earliest form of writing appeared almost 5,500 years ago in Mesopotamia, or more commonly known as present-day Iraq. Prior to this, drawings were used to convey information, but these early pictorial signs were gradually substituted by a complex system of characters representing the sounds of Sumerian, the language of Sumer in southern Mesopotamia. We can see the progress in this form of writing, which was originally read from top to bottom, then began to be read from left to right. This form writing, known as cuneiform, was used for approximately 600 years. Similarly, new discoveries have pushed back the date for writing in Egypt close to that of Mesopotamia. Discoveries of large-scaled incised ceremonial scenes at the rock art site of El Khawi in Egypt date to around 3250 BC. They show features similar to early hieroglyphic forms. 
heliographies, which means sacred carvings, combine around 1,000 different characters. Different forms of hieroglyphics were used for administrative and religious purposes, called hieratic, while another form was adopted for general script and day-to-day -day society. This was demotic, otherwise meaning popular script in Greek. Prior to the development of the printing press or sharing of information using modern technical advances, other more strenuous methods had to be employed. During the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be on him, circa 610 CE for instance, the Holy Quran was compiled over 23 years. From the very outset, the Prophet employed two methods of preserving the revealed Quranic verses. These were memorization and inscription. We learn from a 1994 article from the Review of Religions magazine, which explores this topic in great depth. Islamic traditions record that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be on him, employed four principal teachers whom he personally instructed to memorize the revelations. By this method, even the correct pronunciation of the message was preserved. These teachers would help others in their memorization of the revealed verses, and these verses were also recited in the five daily prayers. Thus, the main mode of preservation and transmission of the Quranic revelations was through memorization. Alternately, we read that the revelation was also recorded in written form. Fifteen scribes were assigned the task by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be on him, for preserving the revelations in writing from the Prophet's dictation. According to a narration, every year during the month of Ramadan, the angel Gabriel would recite the entire revelation, revealed up to that time with the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be on him. During the last Ramadan, after the revelations had been completed, the angel recited the entire Quranic revelation to the Prophet twice. This regular annual recitation was also meant to arrange their revelations in their present order. This method of gathering information and preparing it for distribution is unlike any other. The process of memorization ensured the safeguarding of the Quran and its unquestionable authenticity for Muslims. Preserved in its pristine condition, devoid of any interpolation. During the caliphate of Hazrat Abu Bakr, Allah be pleased with him, the first caliph after the Prophet's death, over 500 people who knew the entire Quran by heart lost their lives in a battle. This tragic event led to the process of preserving the written Quranic revelation as an alternative method of safeguarding it. Thereupon, the caliph Hazrat Abu Bakr appointed a commission and charged it with the task of compiling the Quranic revelations into one volume. The commission assembled the scribes employed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be on him, for recording the revelations, and compiled the recorded texts into one volume. The accuracy of the text of this volume was checked by the Holy Prophet's followers, who had committed the entire Quran to their memory, as well as from the written scripts. Thank you for such an interesting account of the development of writing. Now we turn back to our episode about journalistic integrity and the importance of honesty. Joining me on today's show are two journalism students, Alina Ahmed and Shamila Iftikhar. Shamila is a journalism graduate and Alina is currently studying journalism at university. Assalamu alaikum. So to start off with, I'd like to hear your thoughts about journalism in general and the role it plays in society and culture. So Alina, I'll turn to you first. 
Do you think news and media is a reflection of our society, its norms and cultures, or is it the other way around? Do societies shape their behaviours around what they see in the media? That's a great question. It's hard to decipher what it really is. The pace our society has developed in such a way that there has always been a continuous change in our norm and cultural values. The news and media content we are subjected to internally will change and shift our perspectives. But also, as we progress through society, we will be met with indifferences, which will then shift to become our norm. Our behaviours are not defined by a single set of values or norms. We see people from all different walks of life, yet the one thing we all share and have in common is what is and isn't acceptable in our society. Prior research suggests that media influences through two effects the individual or direct effect, which is private, or the social or indirect effect, which is public. In the individual effect, media information about new norms may persuade individuals to accept them. In the social effect, the information creates common knowledge of a norm and enhances social coordination as individuals more readily accept the information if they believe others have also accepted it. The media is extremely powerful. I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of influence they get from it. Mass media have huge reach in society and are a key filter through which people learn about each other. Yet countless studies demonstrate that these media continue to reproduce ethnic and racial stereotypes with often harmful effects. In various mediums, news, drama and gaming, ethnic minority groups are typically marginalised and overlooked. Very often when they are represented, they are shown only in a narrowly stereotyped role. A lot of our core beliefs are arguably from either a religious teaching or are shaped around society. In short, I do think it's a bit of both, but more so our news is derived from what is current society, which then further amplifies the responses to it. Some really interesting points there. At this point, I think there are just so many different types of journalism or information sharing, from print to digital, from written to audiovisual, and the categories reporting are so vast, varied and broad. That said, I think journalism and society are fundamentally tethered to one another and consequently do impact one another. On that note, I would like to ask you, Shamila, how much media consumption affects our minds and what the research about this states? In short, it does. For example, I have a few stats here with me. One month long study conducted between 23rd March 2020, so when the lockdown period began, and 24th April 2020, suggested higher traditional, so TV, radio, newspaper and social media consumption leads to higher levels of anxiety and depression. Then there was another internet-based study conducted two to four weeks after the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings, which compared the impact of direct exposure being at or near an incident, and media exposure, TV, radio, print, online and social media, counted, on acute stress. It found respondents who engaged with media coverage for six or more hours daily in the week following the incidents were nine times more likely to report high acute stress than respondents reporting minimal media exposure, and it may well could just be getting worse. 
There was a 2022 study observing the sentiments and emotional undertones of 23 million headlines from 47 popular mainstream news outlets in the USA between 2000 and 2019, and it found that they had gradually become more negative. Reports also tell us that headlines from right-leaning news outlets are consistently more negative than left-leaning news outlets. But after 2013, there seems to be increasingly more negative headlines even from left-leaning news outlets. And the proportion of headlines denoting anger or fear has nearly doubled over this period. Though to a lesser extent in comparison, there are more headlines reflecting sadness and disgust. There's a decline in emotionally neutral headlines. Whilst right-leaning outlets tend to use headlines that convey anger more often than left-leaning ones, an increase in headlines denoting fear and the decline in emotionally neutral headlines has been very similar across media, regardless of ideological leanings. That study also noted that there may well be reasons for that shift media industry revenue and moving away from objectivity to advance political agendas among those. Some really intriguing stats there. Clearly, the media we consume has a significant impact on our mindset. As Muslims, we strive to protect our mind from any sort of corruption. And on that note, what does Islam say about protecting one's senses or subconscious, for instance, from their environment or what a person exposes themselves to? Islamic teachings are very clear on how one should conduct oneself in public environments, and there are many teachings highlighting the importance of keeping our senses intact. For me, the most important factor is our modesty. Modesty is not simply confined to the way we physically present ourselves. For example, the way we dress, whether we wear the hijab, etc. But also our mannerisms, how we carry ourselves and interact with others, our speech, our general sensibilities, etc. In an address at their MD Muslim Women's National Annual Gathering in 2021, our Caliph, His Holiness Mirza Masroo Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, spoke on safeguarding ourselves from the toxic glamours of the world. He stated, and I quote, Technological advancement has also enabled people to exhibit and promote their beliefs, values and cultures to people across the world. Further adding, His Holiness stated, and I quote, We are living in a time of ever-rising materialism and worldliness where, despite being intelligent and despite having eyes to see with, most people are living a life of spiritual and moral blindness, in which they consider anything that shimmers or glistens to be made of gold. They fail to realise how superficial they have become and remain ignorant of the far-reaching consequences and harm caused by rampant materialism. I am sure there will come a time when they recognise that constant exposure to material things on TV, on the internet and on social media and the pursuit of vain desires has been to their profound detriment. They will see how all they have considered as good and progressive has actually triggered a spiritual and moral malice, the like of which perhaps the world has never seen before. They will be forced to admit that the riches of the world have left them, spiritually penniless and morally bankrupt. Although we are seeing evidence of this, as increasingly people are suffering from anxiety, depression and other mental health issues on a far greater scale than ever before. 
It is my firm belief that the root cause of this, that they have been trapped by their materialistic pursuits and cravings, and above all because they have abandoned faith in God Almighty. Again, this only emphasises how much importance is laid in Islam on acting in moderation. The issue many people from younger generations face is the idea and feeling of not being able to participate in such activities, or as society puts it, to be a norm. Whilst our religion Islam teaches us to always try and keep our morals intact. As MD Muslims, we are extremely lucky to have the guidance of our Caliph. His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, who has on multiple occasions emphasised on what as Muslims we should be acting on. His words are a guiding light for us in these times, at such a maddening world. For example, in his address that I just quoted from, His Holiness also said, and I quote, You should seek to integrate, but as I have said in the past, integrating and contributing to your country does not require you to violate your moral compass and forsake your religious values. Rather, the way to successfully integrate into Western nations is to contribute to the success of the nation while maintaining your religious identity. Indeed, this should be the hallmark and distinguishing feature of MD Muslims living in the West. Sacrificing your moral standards and values is not going to help your country in any way. End quote. Going to nightclubs where men and women freely mix and dance whilst in a state of lack of all inhibitions is not going to benefit this country. Going to pubs and bars so you can get drunk and lose all your inhibition and senses is not service to the nation. There are many other immoral activities and harmful vices prevalent that are considered part of what makes this a so-called free society. Islam has rules of etiquette and an ethical code involving every aspect of life. As Muslims, we refer to adab, which means decorum, good manners, courtesy, respect and appropriateness. And as I said previously, modesty isn't limited to physical and material expressions. It is a mindset. It goes to the core of how we think, etc. Thank you for that. Now, in an ideal world... All news and broadcast information would be honest, would stick to the facts. However, as we know through mere observation, that is often not the case. Outlets are confined by their biases towards political parties, social agendas, economic and global interests. Accounts and stories are edited to serve the narrative that suits the journalist or the broadcasting outlet, and so the news media presented to us is not often an honest or holistic account of events. Interestingly, and I think this leads back to what we discussed about how society and journalism are linked to one another, even the average consumer of news media doesn't necessarily go for the factual stories. Rather, in modern societies, there seems to be a trend where consumers of news and media relish over sensationalised stories that are intentionally presented in a way to gain traction with the popularisation of clickbait over intellectually sought-out, reviewed material. I mentioned earlier on this idea of honesty as a core principle in Islam. The Holy Prophet of Islam, the greatest role model of Islam, Muhammad, peace and blessings be on him, even before he received divine revelation, was known as al-Sadiq, the truthful, and al-Amin, the trustworthy. It is narrated in the traditions 
that once the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be on him, gathered his clan at the foot of a mound and said, If I tell you that a big army is in wait for you behind this hill, would you believe me? They all said, Yes, because you have always spoken the truth. In another tradition, it is narrated by Ibn Mas'ud that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be on him, said, Truth guides to virtue, and virtue guides to paradise. A person persists in telling the truth till in the sight of Allah he is named truthful. Lying leads to vice and vice leads to the fire. And a person goes on lying till in the sight of Allah he is named a liar. In elaboration of this concept, in a Friday sermon delivered by His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, highlights the significance of truth-telling as well as explaining the danger and damage that can be caused by lies and dishonesty. In this particular sermon, His Holiness makes reference to the fact that in the Holy Quran, as a religious book, expands upon the topic of truthfulness as no other holy book. His Holiness reminded us that the Holy Quran equates lying to shirk, that is associating partners with God or polytheism. So much emphasis has been laid on speaking the truth that we as Muslims are held grandly responsible for assimilating this virtue in our daily lives. His Holiness related a tradition where it is narrated that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, was reported as saying that the gravest sins are committing shirk, disobeying one's parents, lying and giving false testimony. His Holiness explained that lies cause the decay of a nation as a whole. Quite a powerful claim, but not an incorrect one. As we have seen, fake news, alternative facts, Leading headlines and clickbait articles have all contributed significantly to societal disorder, mistrust and conflict amongst communities. So this begs the question then, what is the impact of dishonest news broadcasting and the spreading of fake news and alternative facts? It has had a detrimental effect on many different communities, more so those with an ethnic background. Media representations often fail to reflect, identify the diversity of ethnic and cultural groups that compromise these broad ethnic racial labels. And as a result, we see firsthand in society where many of us experience racism and Islamophobia and prejudice in general. We would think that a society which has advanced in so many other areas wouldn't encounter such prejudice and sadly, this is recurrent on a daily basis for some. Most recently, it is seen in the sporting industry as fans held racist chants towards Real Madrid's Vinicius Jr. The media does indeed play a huge role towards creating stereotypes, which spreads negativity. In my view, the representation we see of people of colour in our media is not accurately reported, let alone perceived. As a journalism student, my own hope and aspiration is that when I do enter the industry, I can go in and hopefully change some of these stereotypes and work to dispel misconceptions. As journalists, we are bound by many codes that we should adhere to in order to produce fair, unbiased, truthful news. As you mentioned yourself today, honesty is a core value in Islam and at times when you are a journalist, it can be hard to conform to what our religion teaches us because there are so many breaches to avoid. In plain, lack of understanding and knowledge from the media has certainly amplified persecution of many and hate speech. 
Thank you for that. You're listening to Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam radio station. We will take a short break now. You are listening to Faith in Focus. Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Musrur Ahmad has said, Remember, following the crowd and bowing to the influences of society is not freedom. Rather, true freedom is having the strength to follow your beliefs and to act upon your convictions. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Faith in Focus. Today we are reflecting on journalistic integrity. So moving on, if I may ask you, Shamila, what is the responsibility of news outlets and journalists to promote and deliver truthful information and combat the spread of fake news? It goes without saying that they should stick to facts, but we're seeing nowadays that more and more often lies are being propagated by the media, and it isn't just the tabloids. Even the seemingly fair and neutral news outlets jump on this bandwagon. Let's look at an example to illustrate fake news in action. You might have heard news that was out during the protests in, the Ira- in Iran over the killing of the 22-year-old Kurdish woman, Mahsa Amini, at the hands of the country's morality police. The Iranian government was very heavy-handed on cracking down on the protests that happened in its aftermath. And so reports had it that the Iranian judiciary had sentenced to death 1,500 protesters. Could it be possible, given how firmly against these protests they they were? Not quite. The report was first published by Newsweek and was then widely shared on social media, even by high-profile figures. Yes, some protesters were sentenced to death, but certainly not that many. How it was known that executions were happening at all was from a statement signed by about 227 of 290 parliamentarians, which said anyone engaging in muhraba, or waging war against God, should be decisively dealt with. Their punishment should, quote-unquote, teach an example. Muharaba is one of the charges that may get someone sentenced to death, but nowhere did it say they actually were. Then, a few days later, a now-deemed-to-have-been-fake document circulated, claiming to show the names of 227 lawmakers on a letter calling on Iran's judiciary to treat everyone who had participated as having engaged with Muharaba. But the list was old and included former members of parliament, and Iran's judiciary also rejected its authenticity. Indeed, research facts of how fake news like these spread rapidly. A 2022 survey by the newspaper industry marketing body, Newsworks, indicated that more than 8 in 10 people that they surveyed in the UK came across fake news in their day-to-day lives. 52% admitted they had been deceived by fake news at least once, Almost a quarter of them said they had sometimes been deceived. 6% say they had been deceived regularly, but only 9% said they had never been deceived. But it's not a new phenomenon. Now, if we look at the history of Ahmadiyyat, even, many news outlets, some of which were even known to be otherwise trustworthy, 
also tried to hinder the message of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, spreading false rumours about him. For example, there was the civil and military gazette, which usually was neutral, but it too would publish slanderous pieces about the promised Messiah, peace be on him. Publishing in 1899 a story criticising and mocking a pamphlet by him about the plague and its divine cure. And he had other British papers publish similar stories. But what's common in all of these examples is that they were all eventually proven to be false. The Islamic teachings on guarding against falsehood and keeping to the truth to the letter are crystal clear. For example, Surah Al-Ahzab, chapter 33, verse 71 says, and I quote, O you who believe, fear Allah, and say the right word. Close quote. Zooming into the words right word, we're taught that not only should we avoid falsehood, we should also refrain from giving the wrong impression. The promised Messiah, may peace be upon him, also said, Gaul al-Sadid, i.e. the right word, entails uttering what is completely true and appropriate, and has no hint of randomness, uselessness, and falsehood, end quote. Expanding on this, in a Friday sermon on June 21st, 2013, His Holiness Mirza Masroon Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, said that these statements suggest that true righteousness can only be attained when you uphold the truth in every situation. Even a little falsehood can lead one away from God or lead to being rejected by him. It should not only be true but also be appropriate and pertinent. You don't need to say everything that is true if it is not appropriate at that time and may cause problems and nor should you exaggerate. Looking at why it's important that journalists refrain from spreading lies, if we go back to the 2022 Newsweek study, how do people actually check whether they can trust what they're reading online? I have some interesting numbers here. To investigate the accuracy and reliability of online content, 46% look for similar articles to verify a story. 35% look at the name of the publisher to check if it's reputable. 31% look for other signs of authentic news reporting, like the writer's name and the publisher. So if who they are trusting will deliver truth is not, how can they trust anyone at all? There was a 2023 study by King's College London. Um, It was called the World Value Survey. It was of 3,000 UK adults between March and September 2022. And it found that UK trust in journalism was one of the lowest in the 24 four countries they surveyed since they began it in 1990. It ranked 23 this year, only one higher than Egypt. Thank you very much. Um, That was really eye-opening, the real-life examples that you provided. And I would like to now mention a hadith or a saying of the Holy Prophet, um, peace and blessings be on him here, um, related to Hassan ibn Ali, that he learnt the following from the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be on him. Leave alone that which involves thee in doubt, and adhere to that which is free from doubt, for truth is comforting, falsehood is disturbing. This is incredibly relatable to our current news and media culture, particularly the idea of falsehood being disturbing, as we see how a skewed representation of information can lead to dire consequences. In 2017, we were introduced to the new phrase, alternative facts, a phenomena which is employed to give an ethical bearing to false information. 
It was a phrase coined by the US counsellor to then-president Kellyanne Conway during a Meet the Press interview. And it points to the idea that Lexis in news media is constantly evolving. Perhaps 50 years down the line from today, discourse will be entirely different to its current state. Ethical boundaries are always changing. And though we have laws in place to protect vulnerable communities in the media and promote integrity, media outlets are constantly pushing this boundary. The Communications Act of 2003 outlines in detail the intricate legalities the media has to acknowledge. And here in the UK, Ofcom regulates both public service broadcasters like the BBC and private media companies such as ITV. Some of these legalities include accuracy, which is the media's responsibility to not publish inaccurate or misleading information. An apology must be presented when this is not the case, a way to ensure this doesn't become an issue for newspapers to distinguish between comment, conjecture and fact. Oftentimes, we may be reading an opinion piece in a newspaper clearly marked so for this reason, allowing writers to express their personal views, though many may not agree. Article 19 of the Global Campaign for Free Expression also instructs there should be an opportunity to reply to inaccuracies. Now, as we consider the idea that news media and content should be honest and accurate, it does lead one to think about whether all happenings need to be shared. Should every traumatic or tragic event around the world be documented and reported? To delve into this, I want to talk about a specific example. Possibly one of the most controversial events in news media was the publication of an image of two-year-old Island Kurdi in 2015, the infamous and disturbing photo of the child in a red shirt laying face down on the coast of Turkey after drowning as he and his family fled a war-torn Syria. This was a journalistic moment of awe as behind-the-scenes fierce debate ravaged newsrooms. Media organisations deliberated over whether it was ethical to print and distribute this tragic photo. I imagine questions were asked such as, do we censor this photo or do we have the responsibility of showing the world the consequence of the refugee crisis at its peak? Here in the UK, The Guardian stated some time later that they decided there was a strong public interest justification as part of their editorial code. This was definitely a visual moment which shook the world. If we were only reading about the atrocities of the Syrian refugee crisis at a time where such news was highly saturated, we now had a plain and shocking image to jolt us out of the desensitisation we sometimes fall into as consumers when there is an influx of the same type of information. This leads me to ask, do you think news media has the responsibility of sharing all information it acquires for the sake of public knowledge? To what extent do the general public have a right to know about the details of international tragedies? How are international events weighted in British news media? Is it balanced or fair, and should it be? Let's firstly take the case study that you mentioned of Aileen Kurdi. You're right in saying that many in the news media deliberated on whether or not to publish the photograph of little Kurdi's deceased body washed up on the shores of Turkey's Bodrum Beach. Some, like The Guardian, actually led by another image of his body being carried away by a police officer. And the arguably more sensitive image was tucked away in an inside page in the paper. There was one publication that decided against publishing it because 
Doing so would have been insensitive in their eyes. But then others used this argument to go ahead and publish it. Some went ahead and did so after initially deciding not to, because it had already been widely shared on social media and they felt that at least if they printed it with text, they could offer context to the image, which would have helped combat any lies being spread about it. And there inevitably were, which we'll discuss in a bit. Now, Emil Rajen, the editor-at-large of The Independent, a British national newspaper at the time of this incident, which chose to publish that image, said, and I quote, Ultimately, we felt and still do that the power to shock is a vital instrument of journalism, and therefore democracy. Our motivation wasn't avaricious, it was to shock the world into action, end quote. So in other words, the drive behind this paper's decision was that when done responsibly, it could influence policy, and it did have some impact. The day the picture first went out, the then UK Prime Minister, David Cameron, said his country would not be taking in any more Syrian refugees. But soon after the public shock in seeing the photo, he pledged to admit admit 4,000 refugees every year until 2020. There was also a surge in donations to NGOs and charities in the UK and even USA, which was attributed to the image. It should also be noted, and this was a point made by a photo editor at a news outlet that published the image, that this image was devoid of sensationalism. It was clear to anyone seeing it that it was a young child who was either deceased or asleep. So clearly, it did galvanise support for the refugees. But then, on the flip side, it was appropriated by others. The little boy's father, Abdullah Kurdi's image, was photoshopped in the image several times. He was accused of capitalising on his son's death. He was even rumoured to be a smuggler. There were political figures who tried using him as a pawn in their matters of international relations. There was this illustration drawn up by the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, which published the little boy's image with a question asking what would he have grown up to, then, shocking as it may sound, answering it by saying he would have become a sexual abuser. Indeed, a year after, his father spoke up against a lack of action for Syrian refugees. I think when you ask, is it important to share all of the details of international tragedies and whether the British news media gives due importance to them, there's two other examples we could look at to answer that. Firstly, there was a study conducted in 2020 which looked at the early coverage of China's handling of COVID-19 in British news media, specifically by the BBC, a public service broadcaster, The Guardian, a broadsheet paper, and The Daily Mail, a tabloid. And whilst there definitely were distinctions... The former two were certainly relatively more neutral in comparison to the Daily Mail, which have, of course, sensationalised it. But regardless, the overall presentation of China's handling portrayed the country as angry, furious and rejective of suspicions or insinuations that the disease originated from there. Even the generally more neutral coverage that the study noted the BBC having did not have anything in praise of China when its infection rate did decline. It noted that the coverage across these distinct news outlets was in fact becoming blurred. Likewise, the coverage of the 2004 Boxing Day Asian tsunami was covered in a way that did not blame anyone. An analysis of the incident noted the couple of characteristics that marked it and also the coverage of other natural disasters. It was sudden and dramatic. What all of these examples illustrate to us is that the intention behind what you're putting out and how you're putting it out is of great importance and this would also affect how a you cover it and b how it's received there's a very well-known hadith 
or saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that says, and I quote, deeds are judged by motives, end quote. Relating that to our examples, the non-sensationist coverages of Aylin Gurdi strove to influence change for the good, whereas the one by Charlie Hebdo was marked by malice. On whether every detail needs to be noted, then no, I don't think that that ever is possible, and like the study of China's COVID-19 handling noted, the way those outlets had framed their coverages was influenced by their target audience. But, and I'll speak about this properly later, it's important not to cherry-pick facts, to distort, deceive, and deliberately incite resentment in others through what you choose to cover. Some really important examples there, thank you. Unsurprisingly, there was in fact an international response to this photo of Island Gurdi. The French president at the time, François Hollande, stated this image served as a reminder of the world's responsibility towards refugees. The image has also been credited to causing a surge of donations to charities helping migrants and refugees, with the Migrant Offshore Aid Station charity recording a massive 15-fold increase in donations within 24 hours of its publication. So there is evidence here to suggest that the publishing of the shocking and difficult-to-digest image caused waves across the world as it raised awareness of the scale of the refugee crisis. I would like to ask, do you believe journalists have a responsibility to drive positive change in the world, and why? And how might these responsibilities be achieved? Um, If I can turn to you, Alina. I definitely agree that we bear a responsibility to create a positive influence. And I agree that society does not exist independently without individuals. As previously discussed, the media has a lot of power and whether we take accountability for what we consume or not, internally the things we watch will subconsciously feed into our habits. As journalists, we can either enforce negative stereotypes or we can choose to educate our readership with thorough facts and open up their perspectives. A lot of the prejudice we see in our society comes from not knowing and ignorance. Those who spread hate speech most of the time are uneducated and those who follow are just as narrow-minded. And until they see an accurate representation and have the correct understanding of other cultures, we won't see much change. We live in a digital society. Everything is accessible at the touch of a button. Yet, there just simply isn't enough content or people out there who are showcasing the positivity and truth. Many of those with platforms who are able to create some change often don't, as it's regarded as an uncomfortable conversation, or they're just as worried about the responses they will receive. People are unwilling to sit down and take time to study other cultures or norms, and thus the responsibility is put on news anchors on online sites. As an industry, we can do more by having more people from ethnic backgrounds and those who have experienced things which are different to what we perceive as normal. It is reported that even in a country like the USA, with its vast ethnic demographics, 67.7% of news anchors are white. Elsewhere too, it isn't often we see a person of colour on screen and talk on their views. But I also think it isn't just up to marginalised communities to speak up for themselves. Every person in society should bear some responsibility of creating positive attitudes towards one another, and that can only be done through education. 
Those with power and platforms should certainly use them to educate others. Thank you for that insight. I think what you have said really brings us to the core of today's discussion on what journalistic integrity means and what its purpose is. Now, I want to consider censorship and accountability in news media and journalism. By the grace of Allah, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community does occupy a significant space in journalism. We are obviously speaking today on the Voice of Islam radio station, but in addition to this, there are many brilliant digital and print publications that are produced by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. One that I particularly wanted to draw attention to is Al-Fazl, a newspaper which was published for the first time in 1913 under the caliphate of the first caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hakim Malvi Nuruddin, may Allah be pleased with him. For an outstanding 110 years, this newspaper has been sharing the sermons of the caliphs and other religious and moral pieces of information and announcements for its readers. Al-Fazl is also a resilient publication. Being printed for the first time in Ghadian, India, then Rabwa, Pakistan, before being suspended from being printed in Pakistan because of the country's blasphemy laws. It is now published in the UK and is also found online. The suspension of this newspaper draws on the issue of censorship in the media. News organisations, by way of sharing stories, provide a voice to the voiceless. Shamila, can you share your thoughts on the responsibility of someone who can provide this for a persecuted people? Sure. It is very important, especially in countries that do not have laws which restrict or outright outlaw being able to speak up for the oppressed. And there are many Islamic teachings and also guidance from His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmed. May Allah be his helper on this. In fact, in a speech in October 2013, His Holiness said that the promised Messiah may peace be upon him, said, and I quote, to show love and compassion and be sympathetic to humanity is a huge form of worship and is an excellent means of gaining Allah's pleasure, close quote. In other words, it's an act of worship and a means of attaining nearness to God Almighty. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, said, and I quote, sympathy for all mankind is a moral obligation and duty. That religion is no religion, which does not inculcate sympathy. Nor does that man deserve to be called a man who does not have mercy in, in him. End quote. He also categorised the Holy Quran, the Holy Book of Muslims, into two major ones. The first is that it teaches us the uni- unity of God and the importance of loving and obeying God. The other is to treat others kindly and working towards their betterment. A key part of Islam is to fulfil the rights of others and what would be more important with regards to that than when seeing those who are being oppressed and knowing you have the ability to do something that could go some way in helping. It might not go as far as ending it but at least casting light on it so that that it is amplified to then use it to do so. Many times, the news that is presented to the public is done so to achieve a specific outcome. For instance, in an election race between politicians, only positive news about an election candidate will be presented by an organisation who stands to gain um, from the candidate succeeding to a position of power. And negative news surrounding the person may be concealed or presented with alternative facts. And I say that phrase with quotation marks. Accountability is a central tenet in Islam, which is achieved by righteous believers due to a fear of God. Can you talk a bit about how accountability affects the lives of Muslims 
and what the teachings of Islam are regarding this. The fifth article of faith in Islam is based on the concept of accountability, in this world and in the hereafter. In the Holy Quran, chapter 59, verse 19, it states, and I quote, O ye who believe, fear Allah, and let every soul look to what it sends forth for the morrow. And fear Allah, verily Allah is well aware of what you do. End quote. The aforementioned verse draws attention to this subject. One is reminded not to merely be concerned with the interest, comforts and connections of this world, rather while living a life in this world and reaping all its lawful rewards and enjoying its blessings, our core concern should be the afterlife. A level of faith and adopting righteousness. Accountability in the hereafter should be pivotal to our concerns and this alone can lead to true moral development. We can progress spiritually when we are conscious of what decisions that ultimately impact our future. Going back to the concept of accountability, the fifth article of Islam, which is the belief in the Day of Judgment, Islam teaches that physical death is not the end of man's existence, rather it is the door to a higher form of life which can bring one closer to Allah, depending on one's deeds in this life. According to the Holy Quran, on the Day of Judgment, this entire universe will come to an end and the dead will be resurrected. The deeds will be judged and, and they will be rewarded accordingly. Those with good records will merit heaven while those with bad deeds will be punished in hell. This belief provides a powerful accountability tool in this life as well as meaning that ultimately the accountability for our actions and deeds is with Allah the Almighty in the hereafter. If we apply this to our daily lives as reflection, we can attain a higher spirituality. Taqwa, which means righteousness, can be central to our lives as Muslims. Without it, we cannot fulfil even the basics of our faith. Thank you. So clearly, accountability is a vital um, part of Islam. I am going to come back to the notion of journalism being forever evolving. This means who is a journalist is also changing. I would also like to touch upon another real-life example that I think is remarkable when we think about who controls the wheels of information sharing. Stereotypically, the public may have a certain entity in mind when they think of a person who has access to classified information. And there are endless academically researched theories which we don't have time to untangle. However, because of social media and the increasing globalisation of the world, we are all hyper-connected and can get information across to strangers on the other side of the globe instantaneously. The online sphere is now so intelligent and most people have some extent of a sophisticated online presence. In this online life, we are on the same landscape as each other. There are no seas or borders dividing us or the information we have. In May 2011, the US completed a successful raid aimed to kill notorious terrorist Osama bin Laden. What transpired while this raid was occurring would, for a lot of people, alter the originally held belief that journalists are the people with all of the gate-kept information. A software professional living in Abbottabad, Pakistan, heard helicopters at 1am overhead and thought to himself, this is a rare event, and he tweeted this information. With these tweets, Sohib Atar would unknowingly become the first person in the world to report on the operation to capture the Al-Qaeda leader, 
This event causes implications when we think back to what a journalist is and serves as a perfect example for a citizen journalist. And it also causes implications for fact-checking. Fact-checking ensures the material that ends up on our newspapers and screens has gone through a type of quality check. That is what is needed to fight fake news. It calls for evidence and filters out information which can potentially harm society. On the subject of fact-checking, the Ahadith, or tradition of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be on him, are recorded from over a thousand years old and were recorded a century after the passing of the Holy Prophet, peace be on him. How do we judge their authenticity despite them being so old? So I researched the methodology employed regarding determining the authenticity of Ahlis or traditions or sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and have here with me notes that, that explain it. In this regard, two main principles were prevalent and reliable in Islamic history. The, these are Rivayat and Darayat. Rivayat tests the reliability of the testimonies of a narrated instance. And as we know, all hadiths are narrated. So what it is concerned with is the channel through which you arrive at the narration. But Dayarat asks, can you take a narration to be true and authentic based on the instance itself and its environment? Now, there are a set of terms that we should really consider when we employ either of these principles. In the case of Rivayat, some of those are that the narrator should be someone who speaks truly and honestly. They shouldn't have a habit of exaggerating and swaying or summarizing original reports so as to compromise on their meanings or should they have a personal interest in the narration in question in case they are taken to be biased. And the more credible and trustworthy the narrator is known to be, the more reliable the narration is. The narrator should also have the ability to comprehend and rationalize. The higher the number of credible narrators that you can attribute to the narration, the stronger and more authentic it is. It, it should also be that the encounter of two narrators who come after one another must be acceptable, based on time periods and circumstances. And links in that channel of testimonies to the narration should be preserved. None of the narrators should be missing anywhere in the chain. Some of the terms of the principle of the riot are that it must not contradict with authentic historical records. So anything that contradicts the Holy Quran should be rejected. Likewise, if one narration contradicts another, more reliable one, then that compromises its reliability. And it's also compromised if it clashes with a proven fact. If there is a narration that is deemed an true and has more people testifying to it but only one existing narrator that puts a narration into question another thing that puts a narration into question is if it makes you think twice i.e if it doesn't seem to be in harmony with common sense or if it's ambiguous and you just aren't sure you can trust it but it is important not to rely solely on revise and there's quranic teachings and even traditions from the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him on that. Thank you for sharing that research with us. It is really fascinating to learn about. As we bring this episode to a close, I would like to share some wisdom from the Holy Quran. Chapter 49, verse 7 of the Holy Quran states, O ye who believe, if an unrighteous person brings you any news, ascertain the correctness of the report fully, lest you harm people in ignorance, 
and then become repentant for what you have done. Indeed, this mighty text which was given to mankind 1,400 years ago carries many of the complexities which developed in the progressive world recently, such as this example which explains the very basis of journalistic integrity. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Faith in Focus. And of course, I must thank my guests, Alina Ahmed and Shumaila Iftikhar, for joining me today and Qudsiya for the report. You have been listening to Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam radio station, produced by Mrs. Shermeen Budd. Please tune in again next time for more information and discussion. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you.